Sunday was exciting. We, uh, we had wind, and the power went out right at the very end of the gathering. It's kind of a cool moment, actually. Uh, and then this morning, again, as uh, you heard earlier, some of our women are on retreat. So the last two weeks, stage is weird, things are a little bit off, but we're still having a great time um, as we move through this conversation this fall called Our Kind of Crazy. Now, I have a confession to make here as we get started this morning. Uh, this this is an eight-week series, and this is the sort of midpoint in it, and kind of the hinge point as we move from talking about uh, our, our core values to some of our distinctives as a church. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about like strategy of writ part of the series. So, just we really don't like talking about this. So, this is my least favorite part of the series. So, just want to give that as a confession uh, beforehand, and then um, just sort of invite you into that with me. Uh, when we start talking about things like strategy and processes, I, the reason I, I struggle with it is because God's work in our life is oftentimes very mysterious, right? And, and it oftentimes uh, happens kind of the opposite of how we plan or think that it should go. And so when we start saying, oh yeah, this is what it looks like for you to grow in your faith or, or, or to walk with Jesus on this journey it's almost a guarantee that some things are going to happen that have nothing to do with this process, right? So I get a little bit nervous about that, but I also think that it's important to name these things and then to sort of hand that over open-handedly, trust that God will do something with it. All right, are you with me? All right, let's pray, and then we will get into this here in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you this morning um, grateful uh, for the ways in which you continue uh, to invite us to be flexible and to respond to uh, just sort of what's going on, whether that's a weird stage or the weather that's happening on Sunday morning. All of these are opportunities uh, for us to trust you more and for our faith to be increased. This morning, God, as we turn our attention to Scripture, as we talk about some of the, the processes, some of the strategies here at Discovery, um, God, we know that we can... We can uh, name these uh, down to the littlest, tiniest details, and yet what we're talking about here, what we're stepping into here is one of the deep mysteries of how you work in our life. And so while it's important to name these things, help us to hold them loosely, knowing that you work way beyond anything that we can strategize or plan for. And God, we ask you to uh, continue to remind us of your power at work in us. We do have a part to play in this. We do have a part to work out on our own, and yet we know that your work in our life is uh, not something that we can manufacture or engineer. But we do, God, ask, we plead that you would be at work in our hearts, transforming us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And so may this be a community that is uh, more and more a reflection of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. That this is a community of good news that speaks and demonstrates in action the good news of Jesus, that he came and he died and he rose again in our place for our sins so that we could be in right relationship with you and with each other. God, we know there's a lot of stuff that is going on in each of our lives. We bring that to you this morning, again, trusting that you are at work somewhere in that, even if it is not apparent to us in this moment now. Help us to be present here 
to be able to hear from your word as you speak to us, God. Would you challenge us this morning? We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and if you would like a copy of the Bible, raise your hand, and someone on our team would be happy to run around and make sure that you have a copy of that. You can also take that home with you if you need a physical copy of the Bible. We love being able to share that and bless you with those. So, uh, again, put those hands up. <clears throat> All right, as you're finding 2 Timothy chapter 2, I want to begin with this. In 2013, the Philadelphia 76ers hired a young sports executive named Sam Hinkie to run their team. And he immediately began a very controversial process of rebuilding the team that basically involved trading away all of their good veteran players. This is a, a process that's uh, come to be known in sports as tanking. And, and if you are a sports fan or if you know a sports fan, just ask them about tanking. They'll, they'll uh, very gladly explain it to you. It's kind of a controversial subject within the sports world. But in some ways, it makes a lot of sense. It's a smart strategy, right? You... you uh, collect a bunch of draft picks and young players, you build for the future, and you set yourself up for a long run of success. It's trading some short-term pain for long-term gain. On the other hand, nobody wants to watch terrible basketball for multiple seasons. There, there it is. All the Kings fans said amen. <laughs> uh, now, over time, there emerged in Philadelphia this little phrase, this mantra of sorts called trust the process. Okay, you'd hear people say, trust the process, trust the process, it's going to work out. And uh, in the sports world, it's sort of become a, a punchline. And yet at the same time, the Philadelphia 76ers are now one of the better teams in the league. They were a couple of crazy bounces of the basketball away from beating the team that would eventually win the world championship last season. And this year, they're, again, one of the top teams in the league. Now, the hard part about this is that, again, if you go back to 2013, 14, 15, 16, and you ask a, a 76ers fan if they liked the process, they almost 100% uh, would have said, no, this is terrible, right? We're, we're losing so many games. We're kind of this uh, laughingstock of the league but now, it's begun to pay off for them. And this is oftentimes how processes work. You don't know how it's going to turn out. And in the middle of it, it can feel very uh, difficult, challenging, muddled. You don't see how it's all going to end. And it's the same thing. This is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but it is the same thing in our journey with Jesus. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us uh, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Now think about that for just a minute, okay? Work out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you. This is one of the great mysteries and paradoxes of following Jesus. There's our part, and then there's God's part. And this is also one of the big challenges in community together, life together as a church. Okay? We work to create environments where you can connect with people, where, where you can grow, but it is not the church who is at work in you. 
It's not church programs and structures and strategies that transform our hearts. It is God who is at work in us. But again, at the same time, it's also not a solo effort. We don't do this alone, and it is very much the context of community, relationships with real people where we have to work all of this out. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you. As I said before, we're, we're right in the middle of this uh, fall conversation. We, we're calling it Our Kind of Crazy. And, and in this conversation, we're looking at our culture as a church. We've defined culture as a shared way of doing something with a passion. All right, A shared way of doing something with a passion. Our something that we do together with a passion is this mission, helping people discover the good news of Jesus. Now, we're at a point where we've looked at our four core values. These are so central to our culture as a church. Relationships, joy, authenticity, multiplication. And then starting next week, we're going to look at a couple of, of uh, what we would call distinctives. Uh, why do we uh, uh, hold scripture in such high regard? Why do we celebrate communion every week when we gather here on Sunday mornings? And then why do we celebrate baptism? Why is that one of our biggest wins? By the way, you, you heard the announcement <clears throat> just a moment ago about baptism, but I just want to plug that one more time. If you are ready to take that step in your faith journey, again, in this process of working out your salvation, there is a moment where we say to the community, this is who I am and this is uh, what I'm doing with my life, following Jesus as my Lord and Savior. We would love to be a part of that with you, celebrate uh, with you on the 24th, so let us know. Uh, if you're interested in that. Okay, so that's where we've been and that's where we're going. And today we're kind of in between those two things, looking at our process, all right? They're very excited about the process over there in the kids' room. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're just looking at a couple of verses today. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins like this. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. There's a, a mythology around the last words of famous people. Harriet Tubman is reported to have been singing Sweet Low, Sweet Chariot when she passed away. Arthur Conan Doyle, who uh, wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, told his wife, you are wonderful, right before he died. What a way to go. That's how I want to go out, all right? You are wonderful. And then Steve Jobs is reported to have said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Now, it's very open to interpretation. You can read into that whatever you want to read into that one. Now, these words from 2 Timothy are part of a letter written from an older guy named Paul to a younger guy named Timothy, and this is widely considered to be the last letter that Paul wrote. Paul, of course, wrote many letters, most of which are collected now in what we call the New Testament. But this is one of the last ones, probably the last one that he wrote. And while they may not have been, you know, his final, final words before he died, these are some of the final thoughts that he was able to record and pass along. And so these words in 2 Timothy, I think, have a lot of weight to them, even though this is a very short Letter. Now let's talk a little bit about Paul and Timothy because we have information on both of them in the New Testament. Paul, a massive figure 
in the New Testament, he is the one who really begins to take the good news of Jesus to non-Jewish folks, to Gentiles. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that a huge part of what Jesus did was give his followers this huge mission, right? Go to all nations and make disciples of all nations. Uh, take this good news of, uh, of me and my death and my resurrection to the ends of the earth. And Paul is really the one who helps lead this mission forward. Now as he goes, he goes uh, all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean. As he goes sharing this good news, he helps start many churches. And in these churches, he would appoint leaders to help guide these new communities. And one of the great gifts of the New Testament is that we do get a glimpse into Paul's relationship with this young man, this young leader named Timothy. Now Paul certainly invested in a bunch of other people, probably more than we can even know and imagine, but we do know a bit about his relationship with Timothy. So let's begin by looking at how this relationship gets started. Acts chapter 16, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. By the way, uh, we'll be talking more about Lystra and Derby next Sunday, so that's a tease, okay? Now there was a disciple there named Timothy whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. That's a tough initiation right into Paul's team. <laughs> As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey, and so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now, Timothy, at first glance, is a very unlikely apprentice. Right? His dad is Greek, and we learn in other parts of the New Testament he wasn't really part of his life. Timothy's mixed ethnically. He's young. And then we also learn that he has this, uh, this sort of spirit of timidity. But at second glance, each one of these so-called liabilities ends up becoming a great asset for Timothy. He has this rich legacy of faith from his mom and his grandmother. His multi-ethnicity allows him to connect with Jews and Gentiles to build bridges between those two. And that's a huge theme throughout the New Testament. How do these two groups of people learn to live together in the same church? His youth brought freshness and meant that someone would take up the mantle from Paul when Paul was gone. And his, his timid nature was probably a good balance to Paul. If you know anything about him, he was very bold, did not hold very much back at all. And then also a way for God to be visibly at work in his life. Now this brings us back to where we started. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Some of Paul's last words. You then, my son, be strong. Don't be timid. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And all the things that you've heard me say, that you've heard me pass on to you, Entrust those things to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Part of Paul's kind of final charge to Timothy is take all the stuff that you've learned, that you've experienced, that you've heard from me, and invest it in other people. So here we see the middle of what we might call four generations of disciple making. Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy, and then Timothy to invest in reliable people who will then be able to invest in other 
reliable people. If you were here last Sunday, I talked about the burrito model of disciple someone. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to that. But it's basically this idea, investing in someone who will invest in someone else who will invest in someone else. It's a pattern that's repeated all over the New Testament, and it is a pattern that challenges the concept of discipleship as being all about me and my personal growth. Some typical discipleship measurements include questions like, am I reading the Bible? Am I praying? Am I learning more about my faith? Am I inviting Jesus to enter various areas of my life to make me more like himself? Now, these are good questions. Dave Ferguson, writing about these types of questions, says, if you're you're looking for a problem in those questions, you won't find it. They represent vital practices taught in the New Testament. Again, these are good questions to be asking, but the problem, he says, is what's missing. I misunderstood, he's talking about himself here, I misunderstood that being a disciple of Jesus was primarily about me in the sense of my relationship with God and with others. But I now understand that Jesus' command, and he's talking here about that command to go make disciples of all nations, Jesus' command challenges me that I haven't really made a disciple if the person hasn't begun in turn making other disciples. So let's talk a little bit now about how this plays itself out in the life of our church here, life of our community here at Discovery. Again, keeping in mind that life is far more messy than the process that we are about to outline. Also keeping in mind, no one model works for everyone, and so we hope that there's plenty of space within this to account for our individual stories and our personalities, the things that God is doing in our unique situations as we work out our salvation and he works in us. So remembering that tension is God who is at work in us and yet our part of the process, that fear and trembling, definitely gets worked out in the context of community. The communities that we are involved in will form us and shape us. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this passage from John chapter 3 where we learned that Jesus and his disciples would go out into the countryside and they would spend time together. That phrase, spend some time, spend time together, is translated from one Greek word, the word diatribo, and the literal breakdown of the word is to rub against. Jesus spent time with his disciples so that his example, his teaching, his way of life would rub off on them. And I think this makes very, you know, this is intuitive to us, right? The people that you spend time with, you will become like them. And hopefully they, you know, become like you as well. I've shared some of these things before, but when I was in Boston, I was discipled, I was formed into the way of uh, biking as the primary form of uh, transportation. This is a way of life, a formation, a discipleship that has paid off handsomely now that I live here in Davis. But that's just what we did. That's how people got around town was to ride bikes, and I got way into it. When we lived in Oakland, I was discipled into the way of third wave coffee and, and, and you know, pour overs and all these fancy things and, and, and uh, you know, single origin beans and all this sort of stuff. Got way into that because that was the community that we We're a part of the communities that we are in will form us and shape us. 
And in the same way, the church community that we are a part of will form us and shape us. Now, we often approach church with the question, what does this church have to offer me? What sorts of of programs does it have? What kind of opportunities can I get involved in here? But I think the better question to ask is, how will I be formed by being a part of this community? What sort of formation will happen to me by being around these people, spending time diatreboing with these people? I just made that word up right on the spot. It's pretty good. Now, again, I, I, I am hesitant about formulas and five steps to this and that, but I do think that there are four stages of formation that you will go through or you should go through if you are a part of this community. And what I love about this process is that it's repeatable. You should be going through it multiple times if you are here for any length of time. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Stage one or phase one would be a time of belonging. In the belonging stage, you are discovering a sense of community. This is the come and see stage. Check it out and see what it's all about. Now, you might be discovering it because you are new, but I would also argue that there's a moment of recovery here as well. Some of us, maybe we've been around for a while, and we notice one day, wow, I've changed a lot, or wow, the community has changed a lot. And there could be this great moment of recovering the good news of community, re-engaging with what is going on in that particular moment. Either way, this is a stage where we hope that you are able to just be here, that you find that this is a safe place for you to be, that you can express your doubts and your questions, that you can wrestle with things, that you can even belong here before you believe, and that you can really be yourself in this community. And this might be a, a silly thing to say, but I think it's a really important thing to say too. One of the most practical steps that you can take in this phase is sharing your information with us. You heard Dave and Dave talk about this a few moments ago. Uh, but I think that in this day and age, when our, our information is so mishandled in so many different ways, it is actually a step of faith to fill out a card with your email and your phone number on it and give it to a church, to an organization that you may or may not know that well. And so, again, we, it, that's not just like a logistical thing, a, a you know, thing that we do, you know, part of the announcements. That's actually a huge step of faith, a, a way of saying, I'm here and I want to belong to this community. And, again, we do our best to handle that information as well uh, as we possibly can. All right, so phase one is about belonging. At some point, though, there is a transition that needs to occur from belonging to practicing. We really love this word practicing here at Discovery. All right, just like in any other family, you have a role to play. My kids are discovering this right now, um, a little bit to their chagrin, but it's good for them. Uh, They are not just there. Um, they're five and they're seven, and so they're learning about putting their, their laundry away and cleaning the table after dinner and, and putting their toys away in their room. I actually am really looking forward to the day when they are making dinner. That's going to be a huge win for our family. There's this turn, though, right, from presence to practice. 
And again, we really like this word practice because it speaks to this idea of process. It speaks to experimenting and trying things out, to this process of working out our salvation. And it also speaks to the truth that there are some things that might have worked for us at one point in our journey that we need to let go of so that we can say yes to a new practice in this new phase in our walk with Jesus. All right, practicing the ways of Jesus. Way more important to us than mastering a skill set or just learning or acquiring more information. And this is not just like a clever word that we thought of or something like that. This comes right from what Jesus does with his disciples. He's constantly putting them into situations where they're not passive participants. He sends them out to, to try out some of the things that he's taught them. He asks them to feed crowds and heal people. And then he uses all of these experiences as formative moments. Let's process this together. How did that go for you? What did you learn when this happened? Or the disciples will come and ask him a question. Why weren't we able to do this? Or how come it worked there, but it didn't work this time? Jesus wants his disciples to get into the game and to try things out. Being formed into the ways of Jesus is not a passive process. It's not just sitting and receiving. It's lived, it's embodied, it's tried. And it it is not about perfection. It is about practicing. Now, within this, there's a more formal stage of practicing, and it's what we would call apprenticing. Apprenticing is simply intentional practicing. In Amos 3, we read, do two walk together unless they have agreed to? At a certain point in your journey, it's going to be really important to have someone who you are intentionally walking with and around something that you have agreed upon together. This is about as formal as we get here at Discovery. Apprenticeship begins with the I see and you conversation that we introduced last Sunday. I see and you conversation is exactly what it sounds like. This is where someone says to you, I see in you something. I see in you the potential to do this, or I see in you, uh, you know, some sort of greatness or leadership, or you can be a part of this community in this way. I see this in you. Let's walk together for a season and see what happens as we focus on this thing. This has happened to me a few different times in my life. When we moved to Boston right after we got married, I was in this weird place vocationally. I had spent the uh, previous couple of years helping to plant a church in Durango, Colorado. And, and that's not the kind of job where you just like put in a transfer and they move you from the Durango office to the Boston office, right? So I was moving to this new city, basically starting from scratch. Had to go find a place to belong, a place to practice, a place to be apprenticed and to be formed. Now, Amy had actually been in Boston a little bit before I got there, and had gotten connected with a recent church plant called Reunion Christian Church. And, and Reunion had this very strong formal partnership with a, a campus ministry called Sojourn Collegiate Ministry. And so for me, I, I basically became a Jesus follower as a college student uh, within a campus ministry. And then I'd spent the last couple of years planting a church, and so I'm like, whoa, how, like, how does this work? How do these two things work together? And I would invite Tim, who was the director of Sojourn, out for coffee, and I would just ask him a million questions. 
How did you guys get started? How did you get connected to Reunion? Why are you partnering together? How, how are you reaching students? What's, what's going on? And, and, and tell me the story. And on and on it would go. And then finally, one day, Tim says, you know, kind of getting tired of you asking me all these questions. Uh, I think you should work for me. I see in you someone who can connect with students. Join our team. And so I did. I became Tim's apprentice, and I learned the ropes from him. A little bit later on, Hank Wilson, the pastor of Reunion, came to me and said, Steve, I see in you someone with the gift of teaching. Join our teaching team. And so I did, and I apprenticed under Hank. My sermons are all his fault, so if you have a complaint, you can send it to Hank Wilson. (laughs) But I've just seen this happen in my own experience, this belonging to practicing to apprenticing. Again, this is about as formal as we get here at Discovery. This is how the process works sort of in general broad strokes. Step one is uh, after being invited into this relationship where we're going to walk together, step one is I do, you watch, we talk. Step two, I do, you help. Now I'm starting to give you some things for you to work on and we're going to talk about that together. Step three, it flips. Now you're doing most of the stuff, and I'm helping you. We continue to process that together. And then step four, you're doing it. I'm just sort of there observing. We continue to talk, and then finally you are released to go do it with someone else. Now what's the key to that whole thing? We talk. We talk. All the apprenticeship model is is a vehicle for conversation, for processing. What is God doing in your life? How are you experiencing God? How can I help you along in your journey? Is there something specific we can be working on together? Is there someone else that I can get you connected to who could help as well? And the beauty of this process is that it's very customizable. It can be very general or it can be very specific to a particular task or to a leadership challenge. But either way, It gives a framework, right? It gives something that we've agreed upon, and now we can walk together in this together. A framework to process what God is doing in our lives, how we are working out our salvation. And the beauty of it is, if you go through it a few times, you start to internalize this, and it becomes very reflexive. It becomes something you're just able to do with other people. Sort of like a musician who has learned their scales really well. This leads to the the fourth stage. This is where you become the coach. This is where Luke becomes Yoda. This is where the disciples take over from Jesus. This is Timothy taking over from Paul. You begin to entrust what you have experienced to someone else. This is where we begin to see that ripple effect. Four generations of discipleship. Now my dream and my prayer is that if you spend time in our community, someone will invest in you and you will invest in someone else. And at the, uh, I think the risk in a conversation like this this morning is we can get really bogged down in some of the details or the steps of the process. So if I could reduce this down to one thing, the one thing is this, back to those words from Paul to Timothy, and trust what you have experienced. 
and trust what you have experienced. Erwin McManus writes, wholeness is not found through receiving but through giving. Life is most enjoyed when we give ourselves away. And this truth is echoed all throughout Scripture. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, the danger of outlining a process is that it's so easy for us to miss the point. We start thinking about, okay, what step am I at and what phase am I in and how do I get to the next level? And uh, it becomes, you know, like a video game or a challenge, right? The steps are not the point. What is the point? To use the words of our friend Paul again, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Sacrificial love, laying our lives down for each other, for the good of another. Love demonstrated by entrusting what we have received, our good news to another person who will then share that with someone else, who will share that with someone else. Now Paul goes on to say in that passage in Galatians 5, and I want to sort of end on this note almost as a benediction here before we even get to the end. But Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed each other. But I say walk by the Spirit. How do we know we're walking by the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. So may we be a community that works out our salvation as God is at work in us, a community where you are growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. May we serve each other in love, investing in each other the things that we have learned and experienced, sharing our good news so that we see the good news of Jesus spread throughout our city, throughout campus, even throughout our world. Let's pray. Father, well, it's good to name these, these things and the, the steps through which we can uh, grow and encourage and challenge one another, we do confess that oftentimes your work in us is deeply mysterious. And it can be difficult for us to see in moments where you are working. So we begin this part of our gathering asking for the eyes to see. Where are you at work, God, in our own life, in the lives of the people around us? How can we speak words of life into each other? How can we uh, entrust to one another the good news that we have received and experienced? May we not hold these things to ourselves, but uh, 
hold them open-handedly, investing them in each other, sharing them with each other so that we begin to see more love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control showing up in, in our lives and in each other's lives. And God, as we invest in people who invest in people who invest in people, may we see a movement of discipleship, a movement of disciples being made and released to make more disciples here at Discovery, here around Davis. And God, even this really big dream of around the world. So Father, we uh, now ask for the ability to hold that tension, for us to be able to work this out in our own life, in community together, trusting that you are the one who is at work in us, bringing about what you want, your perfect and pleasing will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.